We've been in a series on uh, the Gospels, and the idea is the idea of four Gospels, uh, one Jesus. And uh, as, we've, uh, as we've looked at it, we've been looking at each one of the Gospel accounts and how it relates to, in particular, the Christmas story. And we talked about the idea of Matthew presents Jesus as king. And so since Matthew is writing wanting to present Jesus as king, when he tells the Christmas story, uh, he mentions the wise men, the kings who, who are coming to worship this new king. So there's a lot in there about kings and Herod and all of the, that kind of thing. And then we, uh, we talked about Mark. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. And so when you're talking about a servant, nobody really cares on when a servant's born. So you don't talk about a servant's birth. You just talk about a servant serving. So Mark does that. He talks a lot about Jesus and serving and sacrificing. And then we get to Luke, and we talked about Luke last week. Luke's presenting Jesus as the perfect son of man. He's talking to the Greek world. In the Greek world, uh, it was all about what the perfect man looks like. And so um, Luke, um, in doing that, he takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam because he's trying to present Jesus as this perfect man. And so we have a lot of, Luke was a doctor, so we have all of these uh, you know, things in the, in the Christmas story uh, from Luke, which, which are all these little details. And this morning, we're going to end with the Gospel of John. Uh, and uh, John, you need to understand, is John, uh, first of all, you, you, have to, you, have to, you have to understand John. Okay, so let's just talk about John, the guy who wrote this thing. He, he wrote about five books, but this is, this is the Gospel that he wrote. Um, John, uh, first of all, John was one of the first disciples, okay? Uh, James and John, son of Zebedee, uh, the sons of thunder, they were known kind of uh, along that. John was known as the beloved disciple. Uh, John was somebody who was very, very close to Jesus. Uh, in fact, um, when John writes this gospel, John's kind of at the end of his life. So he's kind of an old man looking back. At this point in his life, uh, many of the disciples have been killed or martyred. Uh, John has, been, has, has faced a lot of persecution. He's watched a lot of people die. He's, he has, um, he's taken care of Mary. You remember at the cross? When Jesus looks on the cross, Jesus asks John to take care of his mother. And, and, and basically, because John was related, uh, we think that uh, John's mother was Salome, who was a sister of Mary. So they were kind of like, I don't know, we call it cousins? Yeah, okay. I don't know anything about the whole relative thing. All of mine are in other states. So uh, honestly, if they walked in the building today, I wouldn't know who they were, honestly. So it's just our world and, and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, they go, oh, you're Steve. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay, I know who you are now. Uh, but that's, that's our world. So cousins, and so they're, they're cousins and they're... Uh, and, and so at the cross, uh, John is the beloved disciple. Jesus looks at him and says, John, I want you to take care of Mary because Jesus, being the oldest, would have had that responsibility. And so he passes that off to John, and John takes that. Now, I think that gives us a lot of insight because I want you to think about this for a minute. So John has now taken care of Mary. And so in spending time with Mary, she would have told him the stories. Let me tell you what it was like when the angel came to me and told me that we were going to have a child. Let me, let me tell you what it was like 
on that trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Um, and as we talked about in Sunday school, uh, we don't know that it was on a donkey, but it, it looks really good in pictures. Um, let me tell you what that trip was like. Let me tell you what it was like when the wise men came. And they brought these gifts, and we were just a poor family, and we didn't even know how we were going to make ends meet. And all of a sudden, they brought us all of these things, and, and all of a sudden, we had money that we've never had before. And it was interesting because, you see, John, what happened was after that, the wise men left, and all of a sudden, Joseph, one night, said, Mary, we have to go to Egypt. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden our world was turned upside down and we found ourselves traveling, but God had already provided because now we had, we had stuff from the Magi that we could live off of and help pay some of the expenses. And John, one of the reasons we had to leave was because Herod was going to kill all the children under the age of two. And at that time, Jesus was under the age of two. And we left and we were safe, but we've always dealt with survivor's guilt because... We found out that a lot of our friends lost children that night. And that's always weighed heavy on my heart, John. Oh, John, let me tell you about the story of Jesus. We were like at the temple thing and everything was going along and we lost Jesus. We had gone off and we came back and we, all of a sudden we realized he's gone, he's not here and we had to go back looking for him. When we went back, you're not going to believe this job, but when we went back, he was sitting there teaching all of the rabbis. He was just a little kid. They were all listening to him. And John had all of Then John said, oh, Mary, yeah. You remember? Remember Lazarus? You remember that story? Because he got to experience, he got to walk side by side with Jesus, and they could talk about the cross and how devastating that was. John had heard all those stories. And so now John comes to write, at the end of his life. And John has to think about this idea. How do I sum up the life of Jesus? What do I want people to know about Jesus? I mean, I was with him for those three years, and, and I was with Mary, and I've heard all the stories. I know everything there is to know about Jesus. So what do I want to talk about when I want people, what do I want people to know? Matthew had decided, I want him to know he's king. And Mark said, I want him to know about being a servant. And Luke said, I want him to know that he was like a perfect man. But what does John say? What's interesting is John talks nothing about the birth of Jesus to a degree. John looks at it and he says, the one thing I want everyone to know about Jesus is this. He's God. If you, don't miss, if you miss everything else about Jesus, don't miss this. He is God. And you better believe in him. That's what he says. So when John writes, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, John goes all the way back to the beginning of time, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He says, the one thing you need to know is, when the whole, this whole creation thing started, God was there. And he doesn't even talk, he doesn't even use the word Jesus. He says the word, the, the word was made. The word in the beginning was the word. I want you to know, he is absolute truth. He is the absolute God incarnate. So when he gets to John chapter 1, listen to what he says. 
He starts by this, and here's what he says. The true light. We talked about this Wednesday night, if you were here. This idea of light and how it goes all the way through the scriptures, and, and you see it in creation. And again, John's talked about creation and God at the beginning. And he gets to verse 9, and he says this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, talking about Jesus. And, through the, and though the world was made through him, he said, God was at the beginning. He created this world. And then God decided to step into it. And he says, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. John said, out of everything I've seen in the life of Jesus, here's the thing that's amazing. God, Jesus, who created the world, then stepped into the world. And when he stepped into the world, the world didn't even know who he was. And he goes on. He came to that which was his own. He had created mankind, and he came and wrapped himself in flesh and came to his own. And his own didn't receive him. God, who had created mankind, came to mankind in the form of mankind. And mankind didn't even recognize him and didn't want anything to do with him. God said, you want to know something about Jesus? This is what you need to know. Then he goes on. Listen to what he says. Oh, oh, wait a minute. i got to hit the right button. What's happening, guys? Did you do that or did I do that? Oh, okay, wait a minute. There we go, there we go, yeah, there we go. Oh, it's because my battery's dying. <clears throat> Notice what he goes on to say. Yet, to all who did receive him. He said, you know what's amazing? He said, when he came to his own, not everybody rejected him. There was a group of people who said, we believe. To those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become the children of God. He said, he came to this world as a man. He stepped into it. The world didn't recognize him. But there was a group of people who did. And everyone who did, they became children of God. See that little word to those who believed? What's interesting in the Gospel of John? It's used over 90 times. This idea of belief is so entrenched in the Gospel of John. What's the most famous verse in all the Bible? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him. Again, it's, it's permeated throughout this gospel over and over and over again. He starts the gospel, and you're going to see at the end, he ends the gospel with this idea. Here's what he says. Those who did believe in his name, he gave, to, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And then he explains what he explains to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decisions, or of a husband's will, but born of God. He said, when I talk about this idea that they're children of God, it's not because their parents wanted another child. It's not because of, 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 of all of a sudden we found out we were expecting we are having another child. He said, no, no, no. This was God's decision. This was God's decision that if you'll believe in me, you'll become my child. It's that simple. Believe, and you'll become my child. Notice what he goes on to say. And then he gives this. The word became flesh, talking about Jesus. 
and made his dwelling among us. This is a fascinating passage when you pick it all apart. See that little idea dwelling? Um, actually, it's the word tabernacled, tented. Uh, John was a Jew. So with his Jewish background, this was a big Jewish idea, is the tabernacle in the Old Testament. What he said is, just as in the children of Israel, they had the tabernacle there, which was the dwelling place of God, and they would go and they would worship and everything was about the tabernacle. He said, what Jesus did was the tabernacle hadn't been around for a long time now. He said, what Jesus did is he became flesh, Philippians chapter 2, he wrapped himself in human flesh. Okay? He was still God, absolute God of very God. But he wrapped himself in flesh. So what that meant is he was also human. With everything you and I experienced, with one difference, he never sinned. He was tested, he was tempted, he was pushed, just like every single one of you have ever been pushed. In fact, I would say this. When you study the life of Jesus Christ, as Hebrews talks about, he was tested in all points like as we are, yet without sin. What I would suggest to you is this. There is nothing you have ever experienced that Jesus hasn't experienced to a, to a higher level than even what you have done. Now, with the exception of sin, there are people who struggle with loneliness. They say, Pastor, you don't know what it's like to be lonely. You don't know what it's like to lose somebody. You don't know what it's like to go through um, hard times and difficult times and everything else. No, I don't. But your Savior understands that at a level you will never comprehend. Because you see, your Savior was forsaken of God. And God will never do that to you. On the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God actually turned his back on Jesus Christ, God's son, at the cross. And God will never do that to you. But Jesus experienced that. He understands loneliness at a whole different level. He understands what it's like to have people lie about you. He understands what it's like to have people disappoint you. He invested three years of his life in 12 guys one of them sold him out. All of them ran away from him. One of them said, I don't even know who that guy is, blankety blank blank guy. You don't think he knows what it's like to be hurt? You don't think he knows what it's like to struggle with being tired? Having people demand stuff of you all the time? Can you imagine the demands on the life of Jesus everywhere he went? wanting his time and his attention and everything else, he says he wrapped himself in human flesh. And listen, this is called the incarnation. When you really study this out and when you really look at what Scripture says about this, this, honestly, you will lose your mind if you try to explain it. The God who never sleeps slept. The God who's never had to worry about God as a spirit, they worship him, must worship him in spirit and truth, all of a sudden now has to wear clothes. He has to eat. He has to eat things that he created. But as God, he doesn't need to eat. But he does need to eat now because he wrapped himself in human flesh. <clears throat> he gets tired now. God, who in six days creates a world, now all of a sudden goes, I got to go sleep. God, a very God wrapped himself in flesh 
and said, I'm going to come and live among them. My, my closest analogy to this, and it, it, it's crude, but it makes the point. Uh, you know what Asian beetles are, right? As you find one in your house, do you pick it up and care for it and love it and cherish it? No, you squash that little sucker as flat as you can and get rid of it. Why? Because it's an Asian beetle. And there's millions of them, and they get everywhere once they get started. What would it take for you to love them, care about them, and become one of them in order to save them? Because that's what God did for us. He wrapped himself in human flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacle, literally. Just as the tabernacle was the center for Israel, God said, I am now going to tabernacle. I'm going to spend my time right in the, if you know anything about tabernacles, always right in the middle of the camp of Israel. I'm going to spend my time right in the middle of them. And here's what John says. Who knows everything about Jesus? He says, we have seen his glory John said, for three years, I got to see him up close and personal. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And notice how he describes Jesus. Full of grace and truth. He says, you want to know something about Jesus? He came to this earth and tabernacle, and he didn't come here at, 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 and... and, and rule with authority. He didn't come here and, and, and press down on us and tell us how he was better than us. He came with grace and truth. And he walked among us. That's the Christmas story. That's John saying, if you want to know something about Jesus, know this. He's God. And if you believe in him, you can be his child. And then John spends the next 19 chapters showing you different ways that Jesus was God. He talks about, and we've been through this series a couple of months ago, seven I am's of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ is equating himself with God. He's, he spells out miracles that were unique to John. In fact, John's gospel is so unique, about 90% of John's gospel is not found in the other three gospels. He writes about all of this stuff that the other Gospels don't talk about. And he puts all of this intricate stuff in there <clears throat> so that you and I understand that he's God. And over and over again, he hammers it and he says, you've got to believe in him. You've got to believe he's God. You've got to believe he's God. And he comes to the end of the book. And in case you've missed it, here's what he says. He wants to make sure everybody gets it. So here's what he said. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. You can read about Matthew, Mark, Luke, but there were a whole bunch more that, we didn't, that nobody put in there. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. John says the one thing you need to know about Jesus, the one thing you need to know about the Christmas story is all of this happened so that you could believe in Jesus. Now, that word belief gets thrown around a lot in our culture. Um, 
you know, and so we, because of the way our educational system is, we tend to think of belief as intellectual. It's more mental, okay? You know, you believe in Santa Claus. Do you believe in the Easter Bunny? Do you believe in this or you believe in that? It's this mental thing that we play. This idea of belief in the Old Testament and in the New Testament was much different than mental. It was mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. It was, and I'm going to use a poker term, it was an all-in kind of thing. Um, I'm not a poker player. I would be a really bad poker player. Um, uh, But I understand in poker, I know there comes a point at which what you do is you decide you have a hand that can take everything, and so you you just decide, you know what, I'm going to take everything that I have and I'm going to push it all in. Um, and it's a gutsy move. It's a gutsy move because if you lose, you're done. And if you win, you win big. It's an all-in kind of thing. Um, what I can relate to is, um, and again, some of you think I'm nuts for doing this, but my wife thinks I was insane, but it's my thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't think normally anyway. So um, on stuff like this, but you have to understand my background. My dad... Uh, when, I, when I grew up, my dad uh, was involved in, in a lot of things. One of the things that my dad did was he was a pilot. And my dad, through the GI Bill, worked his way up. Um, at one point, uh, he, had his twin, he, he had his twin engine rating. He was working on, actually been offered the opportunity to go and get his jet license. Uh, so my dad was an instructor. My dad spent, so I spent a lot of time growing up in airports. Uh, when I was in fifth, sixth grade, what we would do is we'd go to church on Sunday morning. We'd go to the airport in the afternoon. Uh, my dad would give flying lessons, and then we'd go back to church at night. And so when I was like fourth, fifth, sixth grade, I'd spend all afternoon at the airport. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in those little planes. You know, when my dad would have to do certain things for certifications, I would go with him. And, and uh, so it was just a world that I was surrounded by. And uh, one of the things that I did on Sunday afternoon is they had skydiving in Ohio. And so what would happen is when they would land my sister and I would run out to where they landed and we would help them gather up their parachutes and we would walk with them back with their parachutes. And as we're walking back, I would hear the stories and they'd tell us how awesome it was. So from the time I was a little kid, I was dead set on the idea of I want to parachute. And then we had children and my wife was like, ain't happening. You know, you want to be stupid, you're not going to do it while we have children. So, uh, I mean, I still was, but... uh, so anyway, so when I turned 50, I said, look, kids are gone. I, it's on my bucket list. I want to I jump. I want to jump. So she's like, you're a grown man. If you're going to do something that silly, I can't stop you at this point. And then I convinced Josh that he wanted to do it too. So Josh and I decided to do it. Well, that, that caused a whole other marital issue, but we'll, we got through that. Uh, but anyway, so, and he wasn't married yet, so he could do, he could do silly things like that. So uh, anyway, so Josh and I went up, uh, Laverne, uh, Minnesota, took some lessons, and uh, they tell you what to do, and they show you how to do it, and all this kind of thing. And I didn't want to do the tandem jump thing strapped to somebody. I, that just didn't appeal to me. I, I wanted, if I was going to do this, I'm going to do this on my own. And so we did what they call a static line jump. And what a static line jump is, is you go up in the plane, and um, they get to about 3,000 feet, and uh, they open the door. And you step out on the strut, and you grab a hold of the strut, and the instructor gives you a thumbs up, and 
you let go and you've got a static line tied to your rip cord. And once you're about 20, 30 feet away from the plane, it automatically pulls your chute. And then if that doesn't work, you've got a second chute to pull. And if that doesn't work, you actually have a third chute that will go off automatically. If you knock yourself out, there's a third chute. So anyway, so there's all these backups and safety stuff and stuff like that. But they explain to you, they say, okay, as we go up, here's what you need to know. We're not going to push you out of plane. You have to make the decision to go out on your own. And this plane is going to come back down to the ground. And we don't care if you're in it or not. So if you just get up there and decide you don't want to do this, just stay in the plane and we'll land and, and, and we'll just keep taking you up until you decide you want to do it. No pressure. You're the one that has to decide. Now, look, we had been through like six, seven hours worth of classes. We knew what to do, what happens at the shoot tangles. Mentally, we knew all this. We had stood up on chairs and jumped and practiced rolling. We had done all the mechanics. We knew everything about it knowledge-wise and even a little bit of practical experience. I want to tell you this. When you're 3,000 feet in the air, and they open the door, and they throttle the plane back, and it starts idling a little bit, and you look out. Stepping out is an all-in experience. Okay? There's not an experience at which you, after you step out and you're hanging there, you go, uh, you know what, I, I'm not sure. You're committed. And when you let go... It's funny because we actually did this twice. Was this first time or second time? First time? First time. First time, Josh. I'm watching Josh. Josh says, hang on the strut and he lets go. And then Josh goes, and it's like, hey, buddy, that ain't happening, man. You're, go- you're committed. You are committed at this point. Um, why? Because, and again, I know, I know for some of you, you're like, you know, you're just not right. You know, and I know what people say. They go, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? Well, that's your, first of all, you're assuming it was a good airplane, okay? This had questions all over it for me, but anyway. Uh, but it's one of those deals where that's all in. When we talk about belief, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about sitting back and going, yeah, I got all the mechanics down, I understand all the Bible stuff, yeah, 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 boo, 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 boo. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an all-in commitment. My whole life, my whole being is committed to Jesus Christ. I'm all in. Just like when I let go, I was all in. I was banking on the knowledge. I was banking on experience. I was banking on everything I was going to do, what it's supposed to do. And if it didn't, I knew what to do next. And if that didn't, I knew what to do next. And if none of that worked, I was going to meet my Savior. So I was guaranteed all that, all the boxes checked. Why? Because I w- it was an all-in commitment when we did that. And what I would say to you is, there are a lot of people out there that will say, oh, just pray a prayer and then go live your life the way you want to live your life. That is not belief. That's mentally jumping through hoops. Belief is all-in. Belief is, I am putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I am all-in on this Christian thing. I am committed to follow Jesus. And that's what John says. The one thing you need to understand about Jesus. He was God, and you need to believe. You need to be all in. He could have gone into all kinds of things about Jesus, but this is what John focused on. He was grace and truth and love 
and you need to believe him. You need to be all in as well. And anyone who does that, I love this because this is a whole nother idea on the Gospel of John. You have life in his name. We always look at this and think it's about eternal life. It's about far much more than that. It's about a whole different way to live life. Because you see, if I am a Christian, and what Christian means is Christ follower, disciple of Christ, one who is an imitator, one who follows or mimics, or one who tries to act like Christ acted, that's a whole different way of living. That means that when people take advantage of you, you don't get mad to retaliate. It means that when people lie about you, you take the high road, not the low road. It means that when you have the right to choose somebody out, you're full of grace. It's a whole different way to live. It means that when everybody else, when your world starts to fall apart, you trust. It means that you can have peace in the midst of chaos. It's a whole different way of living life. Why? Because Jesus came that you can have life in his name, that you can live differently here and in the world to come. Is eternal life in view? Yes, but it's a different way of living life. And what I would challenge you with is this. As you look at the Gospels, four different views of, four different ideas about Jesus, but it's all one Jesus. And when John, who's probably the closest to Jesus, writes, one of the things that he says is you need to know this. He's God come in flesh. And he's giving his life for you. You need to believe in him. My challenge to you as you head into this Christmas season is to make sure you have that. Is to make sure you're all in. To make sure that you've come to a point where you have realized you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you realize that Jesus is God. He is the only way that your sin can be taken care of. And as best as you know how, you ask Him to forgive you of your sin, to be your Lord and Savior, and you get all in. All in's not what gets you to heaven. It's belief and trust in Christ. It's the idea of putting my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. For me, I was 16 years old when I did that. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a preacher. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a nice person. I mean, I think I'm a nice person, but it depends on who you compare me to. Honestly, you know, um, comparing me to my wife, I'm not so nice. Uh, you know, because uh, she's borderline saint. Uh, but I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you have to step back and you have to ask yourself, do you believe? And that's what John asked. Do you believe? My challenge to you this morning is to make sure that you have your faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone. If you don't, there are lots of people here who can tell you what God did in their life and how they came to Christ. They're not perfect either. But you know what? They're all in. They're all in. And that's my prayer. And for those of you who are believers... We celebrate this season of a Savior who dwelt among us, who showed us how to live. And as you're struggling, as you're trying to figure out your way, look at what Jesus did. Look at how Jesus handled it. You know, it's, it's a cliche thing right now, you know, that what would, what would Jesus do thing, movement thing that went through. But there's, some, there's, there, there's a 
great kernel of truth in that. Whatever you're struggling with right now, ask yourself this simple question, how would Jesus handle it? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? Because if you're a Christ follower, if you're all in, that's how you live your life. Trying to do what your Savior did. Trying to handle it the way your Savior would handle it. Because he didn't just tell us how to live, he walked among us and showed us how to live. And he tabernacled himself among us, full of grace and truth. So my question comes down to, do you believe? And if you do, how are you proving that to the world around you? I end with this. John wants everyone to know that Jesus was God in flesh. He demonstrated what life would be like if God walked among us. He gave his life so we could believe. If we genuinely believe, he makes us his children, and he gives us the ability to act like Christ in a dark world. We can be people of grace, truth, and love in a world that desperately needs all three. So do it this week. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And Lord, as we celebrate your birth, your coming to this world, may we live in such a way, Lord, that people see you in us. And Lord, when it is all said and done, we look forward to the day that we gather together around your throne as your children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, united in the fact that we are all trusting in you. So guide us, direct us, use us this day. These things we ask in your name.